the City Hill podcast. We really hope you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london. But today we're in week three of Song of Solomon, which is a really strange one because Song of Solomon is a book that actually loads of Christians down the down the, the centuries have said, like, why the heck is this in the Bible? Like, why is this even in here? And it wasn't even the Christians that said that first. It was also the Jewish people and the, and the rabbis that when they came to canonize what we call the Old Testament scriptures, um, there were a number of rabbis that said this shouldn't be in there. Jewish boys were not allowed to read it because it's like explicit parental advisory, explicit content. It's got like talking about like sexual innuendos and wordplay like that. It's a little bit explicit, it's a bit graphic. And so they were told, stay away from this book. You can't read it until you're a man. They became a man at 13 in their culture. And so they were kept away. There was a few rabbis that were like, this book should be from far away. This shouldn't be a part of scripture. This shouldn't be something that we, that we have in our times of services together. This isn't something we should be reflecting on. This should be sung in taverns, like pubs and bars. So what would happen in, in the Jewish culture, in the places where people would go to get smashed, they would have sing-alongs. And what they would sing is they would sing through the book of Song of Solomon. But there was this rabbi called Rabbi Akiva at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. He's one of the most influential rabbis of his time and still to this day looked at as one of the, like I guess, the godfathers of the rabbis. He's just an absolute legend. And he looked at this book. He had a different take. And he said, if you're singing this in a bar, so in a, in a, in a, in a bar, it was like, if you're singing this in a bar, if you're going through this in a bar, you're disrespecting this, this kind of passage of what is sacred, the scripture, then he said, like, you forfeit your place in eternity, which you can imagine probably scared the heck out of a lot of Jewish people. Like, oh, I don't want to sing that. So don't worry, we're not going to sing it today because we're meeting in a bar, so we don't want to forfeit nothing. <laughs> but one of the things that Akiva said was, he said that all scripture is sacred. But he said, Song of Solomon's, it's the Holy of Holies. The idea, the, the picture that he saw wasn't just about the intimacy between a man and a woman, but he saw in these scriptures, he saw the relationship of, of God to man. And the way that he saw it was from one very pivotal moment that I want to talk to you guys about today. One pivotal, pivotal moment. So the Jewish people, at one point in history, their entire ethnicity were held in slavery. So today, everyone loves being woke, everyone loves Egypt, and looks at Egypt as this perfect model uh, of love and, and, and liberation and, and, you know, stay woke. But they're the only ones who've ever successfully enslaved an entire ethnicity. Like, no, no one free, everyone in their borders, everyone in slavery. No one had any days off. It was work, 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 work. It was just beat down, it was smacked down, it was brutal. They then realized that because of all the work, the only enjoyment and pleasure in life was bow chicka bow wow, bow chicka bow bow. So they were growing numerically because that's the only way they were having like experiencing any enjoyment within their lives. It's the same within the, re- the recession in the UK when the economy went down um, and summers and other places were experiencing a boost because um, people were staying in <laughs> to, to, to have, have their entertainment. So. It's still the same today as it was then. And so they just grew and grew and grew. But then the Egyptians now got more and more shook because they looked at them and they said, well, hey, they will side with our enemies when they attack us and they are many in number. And when they join our enemies, they will overcome us. And so what do they do? They decided it's time we thin out the population. So then they committed genocide. They decided that they would kill all the baby boys under a certain age and throw them into the Nile. 
there's this story that I love of Pharaoh's daughter going out to bathe in the Nile, which is something she would never do. She's like the queen. Like she'd have her own private bathing area, but she bathed in the Nile in rebellion against her father, going out to see what was happening. And when she was there, a little basket floats along with the baby in it. And the first thing she does is she opposes her dad. She takes the baby out of the water and she takes him as her own. Some people have said about that one passage that actually she was going to bathe because she was trying to cleanse herself of her father's heritage, of his disgusting act of trying to wipe out a generation. What I love about her is actually the baby she pulls out of the water is Moses. And so people talk about her pulling Moses out of the water. But God ends up using Moses to liberate an entire people group. Over two million slaves are liberated because of how God uses Moses. But actually, I don't, re- Moses, I, I rate Moses, I love Moses, he's fantastic, but I, I love this, this, this woman, Pharaoh's daughter, because she didn't pull a baby out of the, of the Nile, she pulled a nation out of the Nile. She didn't pull a baby out. See, you and I, we make the, the delusion that sometimes the small opportunities in life don't really matter. The, the kid that we see in our community that's in need, that we kind of walk on by and ignore, it's because it's just that one problem, and what a difference will that Will that really happen? Well, what I love about this lady, we never know her name in the Exodus story, but later in Chronicles, it lists her name as being one who leaves Egypt. So Pharaoh's own daughter left with the Israelites and it reveals her name in Chronicles. Her name was Bithia, which means daughter of God. And the rabbis say that it was because they, that, that when God looked at her, he said, you are not my daughter. Um, you have, Moses was not your child, but you have made him your child. You are not my daughter, but I've called you my daughter. There's this powerful thing that happens that when you take ownership of another human being that isn't yours, a life-changing shift. Now for them, through this lady and through Moses and through what God does, two million people are free. And when they leave that land free, they end up at a mountain, Mount Sinai. And at this, this place, this is where they receive the law of God. Now, the law of God, if you've grown up in like a traditional church background, the idea and the understanding behind this is these are the do's and the don'ts of the Bible. These are all the things that are like, oh, you don't do this, you do do this and all that kind of stuff. But they didn't see it that way because for them, it was a very different scenario. They weren't living in a, in a Western world. They were living in a world where they were slaves. They were now free. And if anyone knows anything about any friends that have been in, in prison or inside or incarcerated for a long period of time, that when they leave, they, 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 life is a vacuum. And they've only known how to survive in this environment where everything around them is done for them. And, and when they come back outside, they, they come out. And they may come out a different person, but then they come out straight back into the same scenario they've always been in. And they just get in the flow and the practice of everything that's always gone on before. And before you know it, they're in deep, deep trouble again. Now, with the children of Israel, they've come outside of their liberation, but they have no idea what to fill the vacuum with. And so Moses is standing on this mountain and when he's engaging with God, what he comes down with isn't just a list of to do or don'ts. He's listing and coming down with a whole new identity, a DNA for their society, a way that they're going to live, a way that they're going to move forward. Some, some rules which for you and I seem primitive, but for them were groundbreaking and revolutionary and made their whole world better. In Egypt, only the rich and the people who were seen as gods would have days off. Now in Israel, everyone would get a Sabbath. So they would all experience Riri's work, 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 work. Six works, seventh day off. They experienced that respite, that restoration. Didn't matter your gender, didn't matter your class, didn't matter your wealth, didn't matter your race. Everyone got that day off. That was a revolution that had happened in no other nation at that time. There is this encounter at Mount Sinai. And that is why Rabbi Akiva 
sees Song of Solomon is so holy. He sees this courting, courting process between God and between his people. He sees a love and an intimacy. He sees someone coming and just scooping them up in absolute love and adoration and turning their entire existence and their entire world on its head. In Exodus 19, it says this, on the third moon after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out and, and um, they encamped in the wilderness and there Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up, the Lord called out to him of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you yourself say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did in, in Egypt, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, how I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will listen to my voice, if you will be a part of this identity, keep my, my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the nations, among the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, these words you should speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and the elders of the people set before them all the words the Lord had commanded. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The rabbis saw that moment as like a, a wedding ceremony. You had the whole congregation gathered around a mountain and this is a moment of God saying the vows and this is the, the commandment, this is the covenant between us, this is the promises. And then the people stood up and they said, I do. And God says, I do. And they entered into this intimate relationship with one another, this, this, this kind of love which surpasses everything. You know, this week, let me tell you, Valentine's, man, what a flop. It let me down big time. When you, when you have a Valentine's week and your wife is sick and your daughter Eden is vomiting everywhere all through the night and then your other daughter Aria on the earlier day is vomiting all through the night. Let me tell you, all that vomit around you, I'm just letting you know, Victoria's Secret and some lighting and some moonlighting cannot make that, it cannot make that Valentine's aspiration happen, man. There's just been way too much puke, way too much throwing up. And then you realize actually, you know what? I, I've been here looking for this particular loving romantic moment, this like, come on now, give me some Hollywood, you know what I mean? <laughs> kind of moment. And then you're realizing that actually you've stepped through into something way more sacred. You've stepped into some real love. Some love where you're getting up at 3 a.m. or every half an hour when your free rod's just vomiting into a bowl. And you're just there, just rubbing the back. I love you, I love you. Daddy's here, daddy's here, daddy's here. I don't want to do any more. I don't want to do any more crying, crying, crying. Ugh, out of the nose everywhere. It's going everywhere. You're cleaning it all up. Listen, when you spend your whole Saturday, instead of like relaxing and getting down and having a great time, and you're anti-back spraying the whole house, every drawer. When you get out all one gazillion toys with an anti-back wipe, and you're wiping every single block of Lego, I'm telling you now, I'm like, Lego, let's go, God. I don't... <laughs> want in on this anymore. Children are designed to break you. If you don't know that, you don't have any. And in that moment, you start stepping out and transcending into what real love is. It's a real love that, that gives our lives, lays our lives down for the benefit of others. Which brings me to what I want to end with. So in Song of Solomon chapter five, it says, he came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate honeycomb with my honey. Love that, bars for days. I drank my wine with my milk. There's this, there's this one moment, this scene, and it's talking about the garden and coming to this garden. And it plays out twice in the Book of Song of Solomon. And one time it's like everything goes lovely, finds her love, all that kind of stuff, and it's great. The second time, not so lovely. She goes out looking from around the town and people just attack her, lynch her and beat her. And um, she goes looking for him and she came, he, came to, he came to his garden. He's in the garden, his sister, my bride, 
And I started to think about the garden. I was thinking, well, why, if this is like a picture of what was before, and if this is a picture of not just that, but also of Christ and his church, I was thinking, well, what is it about this garden? And like, you have this story starting with the Garden of Eden where it talks about sin entering in the world and all things going wrong. And then you have Jesus before his crucifixion and he's in a garden and he's, he's praying there and he's, he's taken away and he's, he's beaten. And then he's, he's killed on this cross on a mountainside just outside Jerusalem. And at the end, when he's buried, he's put in a tomb in a, in a garden. And um, when the, the girls come and they come to, to go nurse and look after the body, the, the, the stone is gone. He's not there. And they mistake him for the gardener. And I started to think about that image and the subtlety and the layers and all throughout Song of Solomon, it talks about gold, it talks about myrrh, it talks about frankincense, it talks about all these kinds of things. And I started to think about Valentine's and I started to think about something that transcends the romantic love that you and I shortchange ourselves for. Like we make receiving romantic love like the number one goal. I just want to be loved. I just want to be loved. It's funny because scientifically, there's no formula to prove that love exists. Love doesn't exist by the measurements of science. It hasn't been proven. Human consciousness hasn't been proven. Pain hasn't been proven. And yet you and I all believe in pain. We all believe in our own human consciousness. No one lives their life thinking that other people aren't sentient beings that they're going to engage with day to day in any work environment or in their families. And all of us pursue love above every other thing. And yet the Bible teaches us that God is love. And we have this love letter where God expresses his love. But the greatest picture we ever see of it is we see Jesus. We see Jesus in the garden praying. And there's the opportunity. Father, if there's any way that this can be passed from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he goes to the cross and he dies on the cross for your sin, for my sin. And not only that, to bring us and deliver us in the same way of Egypt. In Egypt, that every year they had Passover. The Israelites had Passover every year to remember that deliverance. But Jesus came, he poured out some wine and he said, this is my body broken for you. He poured out the wine and said, this is my blood poured out for you and for many. And they would have sat there as his disciples and said, Jesus, this is crazy heretic talk. Like this is about Egypt. And he said, no, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant poured out for you and for many. And on the cross, he dies on this cross. And you can imagine what it was like the next time they met together and they had communion, pouring the wine, taking and breaking the bread and reflecting on when he said, do this in remembrance of me. Egypt was in remembrance of the deliverance of two million slaves from one evil empire. But Jesus on a cross freed all people throughout all space and all time from sin and from death itself. And when I started to think about Valentine's, I started to realize that the love that God has for you, the love that God has for me, transcends that love of any other thing. Don't shortchange yourself chasing after a Valentine's idea. Don't shortchange yourself chasing after a Hollywood idea of love. Chase after a love that lays everything down for you and you'll find a foundation for the marriage you want later because the husband is to give himself for his wife, to lay his life down for her and she is to submit. Well, if she's submitting and he's laying his life down, who's the boss? No one's the boss. It's who keeps on trying to go the lowest to serve the other. I'm going to pray for us today, and that'll be it for, for this week of Song of Solomon. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy towards each one of us. I thank you receive us exactly as we are. Father, I pray that for all of us here, regardless of where we're at, whatever faith we have or we don't have, or we believe in you, we don't believe in you, I thank you that you believe in us. I thank you you believed enough, enough that you would come, take on flesh and blood, and you would die in our place, that we could receive your love for us, that transformation that only you can bring. I pray that this week, Lord, would be a week where we start to realize actually that society shows us on TV and throws all this idea of what Valentine's and what love is just to get all our money out of our pockets when really 
love that we desperately, desperately need is so unbelievably different. It's the love that causes a woman of one nationality to pull a baby out of the water, knowing risking her own life against her own father who is Pharaoh. It's a love that causes you to come down and take flesh and blood and die in our place on a cross and teach us a better way, a way that isn't about violent revenge, but a way where you lay down your life. Caesar would say, he is Lord, and the people would die if they disagreed. You would come and people would say, Jesus, Lord, you would lay your life down for your sheep. I pray, Father, that we would be people that live our lives, laying our lives down for one another, for our communities, for our friends, and for those around us. Father, I pray that we would see the sacred opportunities we get every single week when a baby passes us by in a basket. We get an opportunity with a kid from our area that we know needs help or someone just to pour some love into them and some belief into them and some ideas into them of what they could do with who they are. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that because that is a love that transcends any of the short change that comes with Valentine's. In Jesus' name, amen. really hope you enjoyed today's message and if you'd like to find out more about City Hill please visit our website cityhill.london